Hello, my name is David Runciman. I'm Professor of Politics here at Cambridge. I, I'm currently head of the Department of Politics and International Studies. And my lecture this evening is on the broad subject dealing with extremism, but more particularly, it's about Donald Trump. And it's about the question of knowing, in a world where Donald Trump is president, who are the extremists and who's meant to deal with them? And I'm particularly interested in how we distinguish between extremism and conspiracy theories because conspiracy theories are everywhere at the moment, but I'm going to argue that we shouldn't jumble up conspiracy theorists and extremists. We need to be clear about the differences between them, but we also need to know about the ways in which conspiracy theory, rather than extremism, could be one of the most dangerous threats we face. Okay, welcome everyone. Um, unfortunately, the master's unwell, so I'm standing in. Um, Today we're going to deal with extremism. Uh, David Runciman is Professor of Politics here and Head of the Department of Politics and International Studies. He's also a Fellow of Trinity Hall. He runs a research project with Don Norton on technology and democracy and has weekly po podcasts on talking politics. He's also well known as a writer. Uh, his latest 2015 book is The Confidence Trap, a History of Democracy in Crisis from World War I to the Present. Uh, in December, he published in the London Review of Books an article, Is This How Democracy Ends? Uh, clearly, it's, his book is being updated, and we'll learn about it being updated even further in his talk on uh, dealing with extremism. David. Great, thank you very much. Um, I'm delighted to have been asked to give this lecture and I assure you I'm not being falsely modest when I tell you that I wasn't the first choice to speak this evening. Uh, I think last spring the organizers of this lecture series got an agreement from Theresa May to speak tonight under the title Dealing with Extremism. This is... So, Seriously, this is not a joke. Um, and then she became Prime Minister. So that was when she was Home Secretary. Um, I think there was some hope that she might still be able to do it. And then it became clear that she had other things on her agenda. And so I have stepped in. Um, the correct sequence is Brexit happened, and then she became Prime Minister. If Brexit hadn't happened, I assume David Cameron would still be Prime Minister, I assume Theresa May would still be Home Secretary, and she would be speaking tonight. So if you are among that quite large group of people in Cambridge who are inclined to blame Brexit for everything, <laughs> you can blame, you really can blame Brexit for the fact that you have to listen to me this evening. So uh, this isn't my title, Dealing with Extremism. I inherited it from our Prime Minister. Um, and I'm not making any kind of political point when I say I'm almost certain that my lecture is very different from the one that she would have given this evening. I think for any government, certainly for any Home Secretary, dealing with extremism means identifying it, isolating it, trying to marginalise it, if necessary, criminalising it, and if possible, eliminating it. I think Dealing with extremism in that context is like dealing with your enemies. 
And by talking about something very different, I'm not belittling that. I'm not trying to say I don't think that that's a serious issue and potentially a serious threat. And I am very conscious that I certainly don't, none of us here have anything like her burden of responsibilities. So I'm not being flippant by giving a very different kind of talk. But I seriously do think there is more than one way to interpret the title of this lecture. And another way it's possible to think about dealing with extremism is to ask the question not about how we draw the line between extremism and the rest of politics, but how hard it is to draw the line between extremism and the rest of politics, particularly trying to divide extremism from other forms of politics that share some of its characteristics, including a refusal to compromise, a real mistrust of democratic institutions, a rejection of certain democratic values. So I think there's a real question about how we deal with that as the line gets blurred and more blurred all the time. And that relates to the changing political context since Mrs. May agreed to give this lecture, which can be summed up by that picture. So if you look at that picture and ask yourself, who is dealing with extremism there? You get lots of different answers. So in the spirit of full disclosure, in this post-truth age, I think I should tell you that's not a single image, obviously, but it's also not an image of a single event. So the protest at the bottom is not a protest during Trump's inauguration. I don't think anyone holding that banner would have got within 10 miles of Trump's inauguration. That protest took place on a university campus after Trump's election. So the picture at the bottom is from November. The picture at the top is from two weeks ago today. But they're both real, so this isn't fake. I mean, that, he actually did do that, right? He did do that. So who's dealing with extremism in that picture? Well, Donald Trump would say it's him. Um, and he has done things in the last week which, in his terms, are explicitly about dealing with extremism. He has banned entry into the United States of the inhabitants of seven countries. And the rationale for that is to keep the country safe from, and this is the language, extremist threats. But for the people on the bottom of this picture, Trump is the extremist. And I think they're probably not alone in thinking that. But of course, Trump would say, they are the extremists, because he's not a Nazi. And you know, lots of things you can argue about Trump, but strictly speaking, he is not a Nazi. So calling him the Nazi president is itself an extreme form of political abuse. It's complicated knowing at the moment who are the extremists. So some of this is a question of definition, and I'm going to come on to definitions a bit later, but you can get bogged down with definitions. I think some of it is not complicated. Um, and we don't need to quibble about definitions with some people. So Trump, I'm going to talk about more at the end, and I'm going to tell you how I think we should understand the question of whether he's an extremist. But some of the people that Trump has brought into the White House are extremists. So if you take Steve Bannon, who is his, I think he's called his chief strategic advisor, and on some accounts over the last two weeks is currently the single most important person in the White House, barring the president and possibly including the president, he ran a website called Breitbart, and he has a history of promoting what on most definitions are extremist political positions. So St Steve Bannon has championed 
various strands of white supremacism. He has been involved in virulent anti-Islamic thought. He has flirted with some of the nastier edges of anti-Semitism. So if it looks like a duck, and it walks like a duck, and it quacks like a duck, and it somehow manages to waddle its way into the White House, is it still a duck? On the other hand, the reason that is in the White House is because Donald Trump did legitimately, and though the rules of American presidential politics are pretty strange, and it's a slightly peculiar electoral system, legitimately and fairly win a democratic election. He is leg the legitimate president of the United States, and he's the man who has brought that into the White House. So how are we meant to deal with that? And that's what this lecture is about, primarily. One other preliminary remark. So I know quite a lot of people come to all of these lectures, and they're on various aspects of extremes, and most of them are not about politics. There is a lecture in a few weeks by Matthew Goodwin, which is also about political extremes. He's a political scientist, and I'm not. He's going to be talking in more detail about right-wing populism, particularly with a focus on Europe, and giving you some of the, the data, the evidence, the facts, and the figures. I'm primarily a historian of ideas, and I want to talk about different ideas of extremism, and how we might think about the ideas and what they mean, but also how we might think about different ideas of what it means to deal with it. So I just want to give you one more illustration of how I'm interpreting the terms of this title. And that's a, a mafia example. So if, um, I'm sure not everybody here has watched The Sopranos, but I'm, you know, just take Sopranos to be a just generic mafia family, right? If one of Tony Soprano's henchmen comes up to him and says, we've got a problem, some deal has gone wrong, there's been some betrayal, <clears throat> some enemy is on the march, and Tony Soprano says, deal with it, we know what that means. That means make it go away. Get rid of it. And one way you can think about dealing with extremism is, as I said earlier, that kind of, it's about dealing with our enemies. Make it go away. Draw the line. But The Sopranos was not about how Tony Soprano dealt with his enemies. The Sopranos was about how Tony Soprano dealt with his demons. And dealing with your demons is completely different because they're often inside you or they're inside your family, in his case. It was primarily his mother. And you can't make them go away. You sometimes can't draw the line. You don't know where to draw the line because it's inside you. And it was dealing with his demons, not dealing with his enemies, that sent Tony Soprano to, to the psychiatrist. It's the dealing with your demon sense that I want to talk about extremism. And the way I want to do it is by describing the relationship between and the difference between extremism and one of the demons of contemporary politics, one of the things by which contemporary politics is haunted, and that's conspiracy theories. So conspiracy theories are both a symptom and a cause of what the American historian Richard Hofstadter famously called the paranoid style of politics. And Hofstadter's phrase, the paranoid style of politics, has been everywhere over the past year. People have cited it a lot to try and explain what we're going through. So conspiracy theories are a symptom of paranoia because, and you know, I'm, I'm taking it for granted we kind of roughly know what we mean by conspiracy theories here. I don't want to spend all of this lecture with definitions. But suspicion, you know, radical suspicion of 
foreign plots and takeovers and secret organizations and things going on behind the scenes, hidden agendas, small groups of people pulling the strings, democracy being a sham. That kind of range of views is often a product of fear. People often tend to think in conspiracy theory terms when they're afraid, alienated, disenchanted, disenfranchised. So it's a symptom, but it's also a cause of paranoia because over the last year in particular, mainly thanks to that man, people have become increasingly afraid of conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists. It's really easy to notice conspiracy theories everywhere at the moment and to worry it's part of the post-truth or alternative facts agenda that we're now living in political societies and democracies in which fake stories and fraudulent beliefs have got in the way of the ability of people being able to have serious, reasonable arguments based on the evidence. So conspiracy theories have become part of this generalized anxiety that something's gone really wrong with our democracy because people now believe nonsense and no one is able to call them out on it. So it's symptom and it's cause. And I want to talk about conspiracy theories tonight for two primary reasons. The first is that another project I've been involved in <coughs> for the last four years in Cambridge is a wide interdisciplinary project looking at the relationship between conspiracy and democracy, and particularly looking at this question of how do you know where to draw the line, if it's possible to draw the line, between crazy, wild, irrational suspicion, that's conspiracy theory, and all of those reasonable suspicions that are the lifeblood of democracy. Because democracy only works if, for a lot of the time, you don't believe what you're told. We're meant to challenge the official version of events. How do you know where to draw the line between that and the challenge getting out of control and becoming this kind of unbridled paranoia? And one of the reasons it's really hard to know where to draw the line is that Though many conspiracy theorists are frankly a bit crazy, sometimes they're right. So there are real conspiracies. And sometimes the conspiracy theorists are the ones who spot them first. So to take a recent example, the idea that Vladimir Putin has a secret dossier on Donald Trump which contains photographs of him doing things, I'm not even going to name the things, in a hotel room in Moscow is a conspiracy theory. And there is, as yet, no evidence for that. But that it's possible, and that the Russian secret state has long done exactly that kind of thing, and that such dossiers do exist, is actually a fact. And knowing where to draw the line between the conspiracy theory and the evidence is really hard. And then the other reason I want to talk about conspiracy theories tonight, and this is the main theme of this lecture, is I actually find it quite hard to answer the question as to whether he is an extremist. Although that is a pretty extremist gesture, I think. But I have no difficulty answering the question, is he a conspiracy theorist? Because he is. So Donald Trump has been peddling conspiracy theories for years, and they are actually the fuel of his political rise. I mean, that's basically what he does. I'll talk more a bit later about the conspiracy theory that launched him in politics, which is the birther conspiracy theory, the idea that President Obama was not born in the United States, his birth certificate is fake, 
there's been a giant cover-up of the fact that Obama was never qualified to be American president. But even now that, I keep wanting to say this man, even now that Donald Trump is president of the United States, he's still pushing conspiracy theories. And incredibly, he's still pushing conspiracy theories about the election that he won. I think he's the only person in history to be still running a conspiracy theory about an election that he won. Because he is claiming that the reason he did not win the popular vote is because lots of dead people voted and lots of illegals voted, and that he has the proof, though there is no proof. It's a classic conspiracy theory, and he's still running them. The thing that we have been most struck on the project that we've been doing for four years, and it's been fascinating to watch it happen, is when we started this research on conspiracy theories and how to think about them, it was a really marginal activity. Both conspiracy theories were thought to be very marginal, but it was thought to be a slightly odd thing to study because aren't conspiracy theories for cranks? And why do they really matter? And we've watched over four years, but particularly over the last 18 months, and then really particularly over the last six months, conspiracy theory has moved from the margins to the front page. There are stories about conspiracy theories in the newspapers all the time now, and they are often very, very anxious stories about conspiracy theories as the symptom of what's gone wrong with our democracy. And it's not just in the United States. It's in Europe, it's in relation to Brexit, it's over here. You know, the conspiracy theories about Jeremy Corbyn and MI5, there are as many of them as there are about Donald Trump and the CIA. So what I want to do is offer a fairly, I hope, I mean, it's not that straightforward, but reasonably clear claim about the relationship between conspiracy theories and extremism. I'm going to try and explain to you why I think this, and then I'm going to try and apply the lessons of the distinction that I draw First, broadly to contemporary politics, and then to trying to answer the question, how should we think about extremism in relation to that picture? So the simple claim that I want to make is that not all conspiracy theorists are extremists, but pretty much all extremists are conspiracy theorists. Or to put it a slightly different way, if you are labelled an extremist, that probably means you're a conspiracy theorist. But if you're labelled a conspiracy theorist, that does not make you an extremist. So I'll, I'll take each part of that in turn. So first of all, I'll try and explain why do I say that conspiracy theorists are not necessarily extremists? And then I'll come on to the other part of the equation. So the reason I think that conspiracy theorists are not necessarily extremists is simply because I think we have quite a lot of evidence now that there are a heck of a lot of conspiracy theorists out there and maybe even in here. I'm not going to do a show of hands, but I'm, temp <laughs> I'm tempted because I'm going to give you some surveys that we've done. And if you want to raise your hand, if you believe some of the things that I say. Um, so just to give one example, the one that I mentioned, uh, this wasn't our survey. We did some surveys for our project. I'll come on to those. But a survey that YouGov did last year of Jeremy Corbyn supporters uh, within the Labour Party. And there are a lot of them. As you know, the Labour Party is now the biggest political party in uh, Europe, and the majority still, I think just, of Labour Party members are Corbyn supporters. And when they were polled, did they agree with the claim that the reason that Jeremy Corbyn gets such a bad press is that MI5 is behind it? 50% said yes. Now, that's a lot. And that is a conspiracy theory. And I have to emphasize here, when I say something is a conspiracy theory, I'm not saying by definition it's not true. I mean, I think that's within the bounds of possibilities, but I think it's quite unlikely. 
I think there are other reasons why Jeremy Corbyn might get a bad press. <laughs> but if you believe that, you do believe something fundamentally conspiratorial about the workings of the British state. In fact, it sounds like you have some pretty radical suspicions about the basic functioning of democracy. But I don't think believing that makes you an extremist. And I mean, part of this is just human experience. So I know a lot of Corbyn supporters. You probably know some of you may well be these people. And in my experience, holding that belief often goes along with being a tolerant, gentle, decent, wouldn't say boo to a goose kind of citizen. If those people are all extremists, then we've got a real problem with the definition of extremism. So these are the surveys that we did for our project. And I'm, I'm just, I'm not giving you the facts and figures, and I didn't want to, I don't like just putting out lots of slides. We spend enough time looking at screens. So I'm, I'm just sort of slightly paraphrasing the evidence here, but the real evidence is on our website, among other places. So when we asked people, and this is, we, we've done a range of surveys, but I'm focusing here on the UK. We asked people um, whether they subscribe to various things that we categorized as conspiracy theories. So the kind of famous hardcore conspiracy theories, things like the moon landings were fake, you know, they never did land on the moon, uh, Princess Diana was killed, in this case it's by MI6, not MI5, um, Elvis is still alive. You know. <laughs> uh, and then slightly more ones where the evidence is a bit shakier, and, and actually Britain is rather different from the United States on this, that 9-11 was an inside job. That, that, you know, lots of variants on that, but that either that never really happened or the footage is fake or the American government did it. Not that many people actually believe in these things. It is very, that is very much a minority set of beliefs. And when I say minority, we're talking maybe 10%, sometimes 15%. It's still quite a lot of people. Um, and this, is, this was a pretty broad survey of adults in the United Kingdom. But it is you know, the, the view that this is, these are marginal beliefs and this is sort of on the edges of mainstream opinion, that fits those conspiracy theories. But then we asked people some other questions too. So one of them was, do you believe that the government is deliberately hiding the truth about the real number of immigrants in this country? I'm not going to ask who believes that. But in our survey, 50% of people believe that. Now that is, you know, the key word there is deliberately. I mean, the government might accidentally, by incompetence, I think it's very likely, they have no idea, the real number, but there is a secret plot in government to mislead the British public. There are way more immigrants here than we're told, and they know it, and they've deliberately... That would take a conspiracy. So to believe that, you have to believe in a conspiracy. Likewise, so this survey was pre-Brexit, and this may have changed because of the circumstances have changed, but pre-Brexit, when we asked people, do you believe that the European Union is secretly plotting to take over the laws of the United Kingdom? 50% of people believe that. And the key word in that question is secretly. Right? If they were doing it openly, that would be one thing, but secretly. And then we ask people, do you agree with this statement? It doesn't matter who wins elections. The same small group of people always run things. Roughly two-thirds of people believe that. I think I believe that, actually. <laughs> um, and that last one... That's right at the edges of what counts as a conspiracy theory because it's not totally clear what the conspiracy is there. It's a suggestion of a secret group. But there's a spectrum here of these beliefs. But certainly the, the two I gave you before that, I think are definitely in the domain of conspiracy theory. And I think if half of people are believing these things, or on some of them two-thirds, we can't call this extremism. If two-thirds of people are extremists, we haven't really got a democracy. 
And I do think we still have a democracy, so I just don't think it works. So another piece of evidence here, this comes from the United States, is that it does seem clear that conspiracy theories and people's likelihood to believe in them tends to track democratic outcomes rather than oppose and stand in repudiation of democracy, a kind of explicit rejection of democracy. So there is quite a lot of evidence that when there is a Republican in the White House, Democrats are the conspiracy theorists. They believe that George Bush is a secret stooge of the oil industry. And when a Democrat is in the White House, Republicans are the conspiracy theorists. They believe that he wasn't born in the United States and he's a secret Muslim. But that it ebbs and flows with democracy. It's actually part of the rhythm of democratic life. That when you're out of power, you're really, really suspicious of the people in power. But when your side is in power, your suspicions fall away. And the other lot get to be suspicious for four years or eight years. And when this evidence is presented, it's mildly reassuring in that the idea is, though the beliefs can be pretty wacky beliefs, they're not deeply held, and they ebb and flow, and as long as democracy keeps that ebb and flow, they'll never get so entrenched as to be really a threat. In the surveys that we did, we also found something similar, but we did find a substantial group of people who seem to subscribe to conspiracy theories regardless of who wins elections, regardless of who's in power, and they tended to be the people who believed that the political system had excluded them entirely. So again, pre-Brexit, this included a significant number of UKIP voters <coughs> who, in, in a sense, subscribed to a range of conspiracy theories that were not affected by whether it was a Conservative government or a Labour government, whereas a Labour government tended to, would tend to make Labour supporters less inherently suspicious. But again, I don't think we should... So one interesting question, we haven't done this work, is would UKIP supporters still think like that post-Brexit? I have a feeling they might, because UKIP are nowhere near power now. They're, no near, they're maybe further away from power than they were pre-Brexit. Still the same people running things. But also, I just don't think we want to think of that as a kind of extremist rejection of democracy, the fact that you nonetheless have this kind of radical suspicion regardless of who's in. Rather than, I think, people rejecting democracy, I think it's more an expression of their view that democracy has rejected them. And rather than saying they no longer believe in democracy, it's almost a kind of cry from the heart that they want their democracy back. They haven't given up on it. They don't want to replace it, overturn it, certainly not replace it by violence. They want to reclaim it. That's not extremism. I really think that's not extremism. And then finally, the other thing about conspiracy theorists, and I'll come on to my definition of extremism in a second, is that Though they can believe some pretty extreme things, right on the edges of what you might call reasonable discourse, they very often have no intention of acting on them. In fact, conspiracy theory is often a substitute for action in politics. It's a kind of comfort blanket. If you feel rejected by the system, it's a way of not engaging. It's a way of pushing the world out. It can be a very passive thing a kind of retreat from the world. You put up the barrier of conspiracy theory so you really don't have to engage. You just have a worldview that allows you to push the whole thing away. You can be a passive conspiracy theorist. You can be a quiescent conspiracy theorist. You can really be someone who doesn't want to engage at all. And I think we have a sort of classic image of the conspiracy theorist, which is someone, it's a man, so they are usually men, um, Though in those broader 50% answers, it was fairly gender neutral. But some of the wackier conspiracy theorists tend to be men. It's a man, a single man sitting alone in a basement with a kind of blinking computer screen, 
following his crazy theories down the wormholes of the internet, finding a plot and then connecting it to this plot and this plot and this plot. Looks a bit extreme. And then it sounds a bit like an extremist, which is a man again, sitting in a basement, looking at a blinking computer screen and plotting how he's going to blow up the world. But there's a huge difference. So the second is plotting. The first is following plots that he's not involved in. They're not the same. So that's why I think it's a mistake to think conspiracy theorists are extremists. Why do I think, I'll be brief on this, why do I think extremists tend to be conspiracy theorists? Well, this is why I do have to get a bit into definitions, and I'm going to read you in a second the government's definition, Theresa May's definition, of extremism. But basically, if we take extremism to be not a passive, but an active rejection, repudiation of mainstream values of established systems, of legitimate, as they are deemed, institutions. It's the extremes not retreating to the margins, but pushing back hard from the margins, or even trying to drag the center to the edges. It's a very active form of politics extremism, I think. Um, it's about trying to overturn things. It often comes with violence. And I think the vast majority of conspiracy theorists are not violent. But extremism often comes with violence. And if the mainstream system, the legitimate system, is democracy, it is the active and explicit repudiation of democracy. Certainly that would be the government's definition. So the government's definition is vocal or active opposition to fundamental British values, including democracy and the rule of law. You don't have to agree with that definition, but that is how it's laid out. And obviously the insertion of the word British there complicates things. But vocal or active opposition, repudiation of democracy and the rule of law. And many people who engage in politics like that, vocal, active, potentially violent, just are conspiracy theorists because they think democracy is a sham. I mean, that's what they reject about it, that it's a front, it's a complete joke, it's a con. The real story is what's behind the scenes. And often such people will identify particular ethnic groups, and often and depressingly it's the Jews, but not always, by any means, it could be the Americans, it could be the CIA, the secret state. But the real story about democracy for many extremists is not democracy. It's the hidden story, the secret state. So extremism and conspiracy theory, seen from that end, do go together. Now, that definition of extremism, obviously it depends a lot on circumstance. Who gets deemed to pose this kind of threat to British values? When I was a student in the late 80s and early 90s, Sinn Féin fell under that, not, I mean, it wasn't the same definition, but fell under that broad heading for the then Thatcher government that decided that Sinn Féin posed a threat to basic British values along with a whole range of other Irish extremist groups, as they were deemed. And famously, Sinn Féin were denied the oxygen of publicity. They couldn't be broadcast speaking in their own voices on British television. Now, Sinn Féin, I think, don't have a lot in common in worldview with the people that the government are currently primarily worried about as extremists a whole different generation of threats and, indeed, terrorism. And I'm using Sinn Féin. I'm not making any particular point here about Sinn Féin, but in a much more generic sense, just a group that gets labelled extremist. There's an inevitable tendency, I think, if you are treated that way, to see the surface story about democracy, about values and the rule of law, as a kind of scam, as a sham, as a con. I think almost all extremist groups, even ones, and I would include Sinn Féin in this, whose basic worldview, some of whose core political beliefs are not actually that extreme. They're, they're, they're within the spectrum of leftist European politics. 
but to be treated as an extremist, almost inevitably being pushed to the margins like that, explicitly by a so-called rule of law state, leads you to believe that the real story of that state is the secret state. And indeed, you may often be right as well. I'm, I'm absolutely not saying this is about labelling, that if the state calls you an extremist, that makes you an anti-Semite, turns you into one. I think most of the people that the state labels extremists were already anti-Semites. But I am saying that something about the way you experience politics almost certainly frames your view. So just to put it slightly differently, if you are if you fall under the heading of extremist and therefore are, in some sense, prescribed by the state, you will have to conspire to do your politics. You will be forced to be a conspirator because that's how your politics will work. You will have to do some things in secret. I think all extremist organizations, when they are de defined in those terms, are forced into the world of conspiracy. And if you conspire, we know, there's a lot of evidence, you tend to see the world as a giant conspiracy. You tend to experience the world the way the world experiences you. People who conspire from Stalin down tend to also see the world as a giant conspiracy. So being forced into that space almost certainly inclines you to think that the real story of politics is the behind-the-scenes secret plot story. So what I'm trying to say is that conspiracy theory and extremism are not the same thing, but they overlap. And understanding how they overlap, I think, is important. I think pretty much all extremists are conspiracy theorists, some by conviction, because that's how they see the world, some by circumstance, because that's how the world sees them. I don't think all conspiracy theorists are extremists. So what I want to do in the second half of this lecture is then try and apply that analysis to contemporary politics in order to say something about Donald Trump. So I want to draw just three or four sort of, I, I guess, lessons for current politics from that analysis. So the first is I think we need to be careful about who we label extremists. I think the word gets bandied around too much. So leaving aside formal government definitions, but there's a lot of talk about various kinds of people being extremists. You voted for Brexit. You voted for Brexit because your primary concern is immigration. You voted for Brexit because you believe that the EU is a secret organization plotting to take over the laws of this country. That makes you an extremist. I think it's a big mistake to label people like that. Nick Clegg, um, in 2011, when he was deputy prime minister, um, trying to give his account of the governments, the coalition governments then strategy on extremism, gave a speech in which he said, the real threat posed by extremism and extremists is their closed-mindedness. They have such closed minds. And closed minds are such a threat in politics. We need all to have open minds. That may be true. It may be true that extremists have closed minds. We've all got closed minds. Nick Clegg has a closed mind. Nick Clegg has a really closed mind on Brexit. He cannot see the other side at all. I think using closed-mindedness as a kind of proxy for extremism is not a good route to go down. So I only want to read you one extended quotation this evening. And I, I feel, I don't know why I feel this, I feel I should preface this by saying, I was on the other side of this person in the Brexit question. So I didn't think that we should leave. On the other hand, I think that he has a really serious point. So this is Dominic Cummings, who was Michael Gove's uh, chief advisor for a long time, and he was one of the architects, one of the engineers of Brexit. He was one of the strategists that delivered it. 
and he wrote a fascinating blog about a month ago explaining the campaign from his point of view. It's well worth reading. This is just one passage from it about extremism. So it doesn't occur to, it says here, SW1, to Westminster. It doesn't occur to Westminster and the media that outside London, their general outlook is seen as extreme. We can include Cambridge in that. Cambridge is part of the London of the mind. Have an immigration policy that guarantees free movement rights, even for murderers, so we cannot deport them or keep them locked up after they are released. Extreme. Have open doors to the EU and don't build the infrastructure needed. Extreme. Ignore warnings about the dangers of financial derivatives, including from the world's most success, sorry, from the most successful investor in the history of the world, and just keep pocketing the taxes from the banks and spending your time on trivia rather than possible disasters. Extreme. Make us, living on average wages without all your lucky advantages, pay for your bailouts while you keep getting raises and bonuses. Extreme and stupid and contemptible. These views are held across educational lines, across party lines, across class lines. This is a slightly odd demonology we're going to get here. Cameron, Blair, and Evan Davis, the Newsnight <laughs> presenter. So that's the conspiracy, right? Cameron, Blair, Evan. You always have to have three people. Cameron, Blair, and Evan Davis agree about lots of these things and tell people constantly why they are wrong to think differently. But to millions, and this is in italics, they are the extremists. I think there's a lot of force to that. I don't think there's a lot of force to the thought that they are the extremists. I'm not going to tell you that Evan Davis is the real extremist. I think both sides are wrong to call the other sides extremists. And two wrongs, in this case, definitely do not make a right. I think there's also a danger in, in a political climate where conspiracy theory is becoming increasingly a kind of... It's almost a panic that we run conspiracy theory and extremism together. And people who seem to have these kind of conspiracy theory-type mindsets get branded extremists. I also think that's a big mistake. I think, as I said, there's a temptation to, to imagine them as the same kind of person, a sort of secretive, plotting person in a basement somewhere. They're really not. But the other problem here is that conspiracy theory, like extremism, is not some kind of neutral term. There isn't actually a neutral definition of either of them because they are terms of abuse. Right? They are used to abuse people. You don't call someone an extremist because you want them to like you. You call someone an extremist in order to, in some sense, criticize or stigmatize them. Same with conspiracy theorists. No one, not even the conspiracy theorists that we've met on our project, like being called conspiracy theorists. In fact, they hate it. They if you call a conspiracy theorist a conspiracy theorist, that's the worst thing you can say. No one likes being called a conspiracy theorist, so it's a useful term to push people to the margin. So I'll just give you one example. I'm just going to do a brief detour about conspiracy theory. I'm going to take one of... Um, Dominic Cummings' demons, uh, Tony Blair. So Tony Blair, after the Iraq war, developed a habit, I think, I thought a very regrettable habit, of saying of some of his staunchest critics, I'm not dealing with the usual conspiracy theorists. I'm just not going to engage with the conspiracy theorists. And what he was meaning to say by that was, there is no point in arguing with these people. There's nothing you can say that will persuade them that I didn't know that Saddam did, that it wasn't all about the oil, that me and Bush didn't sign a deal in blood in Texas, and to, all of that. I'm just not going to engage with them. And also what he was implying was these people have completely misunderstood how the world works. We made a mistake. We got things wrong. 
not by design, we had the best intentions, but because we're fallible. And they treat every mistake as a deliberate malign plot. So we didn't know that he didn't have weapons of mass destruction. They assumed that we must have known that he didn't, and therefore we plotted the invasion anyway. And I happen to think both that it's disgraceful for Blair to call these people conspiracy theorists, because it's a way of refusing to have the argument, refusing to engage. And I also think he's kind of right, in that you can't argue with these people, not the people who are really committed to the view that Blair knew everything all along, there was a secret deal, a secret plot. And I also think he's right that a lot of people do jump too quickly from cock-up to conspiracy. That is, they see a mistake and they assume it must have been intended or deliberate. And actually, as you know, there's a kind of question that's often asked to people. Do you subscribe to the cock-up view of history or the conspiracy view of history? And one of the, I think, firm conclusions that we've reached in our project is that that is a false distinction. Right? Lots of conspiracies produce cock-ups. So that's the plot of most Hollywood bank heist movies. Right? They plot this brilliant bank heist, and it's a complete and utter disaster. Um, I think John McDonnell would say, just look at the plot to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn last year. He said it in fruitier language than that. But just as importantly, a lot of cock-ups lead to conspiracies. So conspiracies lead to cock-ups, but cock-ups lead to conspiracies. So I'll just give you one example. I just, you can't give a talk about conspiracy theory without talking about the Kennedy assassination. So I'm just going to give you one example from that, which is um, Lee Harvey Oswald, the man who probably killed President Kennedy, was known to the FBI and the CIA well in advance. They had surveillance on him. They had all sorts of files on him. He had lived in the Soviet Union for a while. He was a person of real interest to both agencies. They had agents who dealt with him. Some people were meant to be keeping him under surveillance. That man then shoots the president. And the FBI and the CIA destroy their files on Lee Harvey Oswald. They burn them, they bury them, they get rid of them. So what is that evidence of? For a conspiracy theorist, that is evidence that they knew in advance. In fact, they were involved in the plot. They, they knew um, Oswald. Uh, they had all these files on him. He killed the president. They were part of the plot, and that's why they've destroyed the evidence, because they knew what was coming. Whereas I think it's kind of 90 times more plausible that they were so appalled that they'd had under surveillance the man who killed the president that they destroyed the evidence. They were so horrified that they hadn't seen it coming, that they did everything in their power to cover their tracks. So they were engaged in a conspiracy, but it was a conspiracy because of a cock-up. Conspiracy theories and real conspiracies, it's very complicated. So what I want to say is there's a kind of broad spectrum here. There's a sort of whole set of beliefs that fall very roughly under the heading of a conspiracy theory. And they run from suspicion of democracy, a feeling that it's been stolen by certain groups, that elites are running the show, that people have been disenfranchised. It doesn't matter what we do, what we say, how we vote, the same small group of people will run things. Through to much more full-blown conspiracy theories where people just refuse to believe anything that they're told. They think any piece of official government evidence is a kind of sham or a hoax right the way through to what I would call overt extremist conspiracy theories, where people take those beliefs and want to act on them in genuinely radical, sometimes violent, active ways that they don't just want to say, democracy's not working for us, they want to replace it with something else. It's a broad spectrum. You could say the name for the first group of people is to be a citizen. The name for the second group is to be a conspiracy theorist. The name for the third group is to be an extremist. I think you can distinguish them 
but I really do think the lines between them are pretty blurred. And we have to be careful to think that you just know citizen, conspiracy theorist, extremist. They're actually quite easy to jumble up. Or to put it another way, the same belief can be an example of any of those three categories. So for people who believe that President Obama was not born in the United States and that therefore he was ineligible to be president because his birth certificate was fake, and there are, the evidence is, large numbers of Republican voters who still think that, and overwhelming numbers of people who voted for Donald Trump in the Republican primaries who think that. Where do they fit on that spectrum? Well, they could fit anywhere. You could believe that because it's just your expression of your fundamental dissatisfaction with the Obama regime. You don't like what he's done. You don't like the way he behaves. You maybe don't like his race. But you're not an extremist. You actually have no intention of acting on these beliefs. And you're also not a full-blown conspiracy theorist. You haven't looked at the birth certificate. You have actually no idea what anyone's talking about. You've just picked it up somewhere on the internet, and it chimes with your worldview, so you'll run with it. Or you could be that kind of full-blown conspiracy theorist who has looked at the birth certificate and has found that little dot on the left-hand side that shows it can't come from Hawaii because the paper looks wrong. And then you've read somewhere that the person who spotted that five years ago died in a car crash somewhere in Idaho. <laughs> um, and there is you know, full-blown conspiracy theorists. There, is the, you know, there are various tropes, one of which is there's always a list of people who died in weird car crashes. Or you could be a white supremacist racist who believes that the reason Obama is an illegitimate president is because he's an African-American, and it's your way of saying that. And given the chance, you'd quite like to pick up your guns and shoot some people, and that would make you an extremist. But in a way, it is the same belief. It's held differently. So you might say it's not the same belief, because surely like that third group might really believe it, and the second group seem to really believe it. But the large majority of people who kind of have subscribed to it because they read it somewhere on the internet and it sort of fits with their worldview, but they're not committed to it, don't really believe it. But I think there is quite a lot of um, political psychology evidence that actually people do believe these things, that our actual beliefs tend to fit our political preferences rather than the other way around. We kind of retrofit what we believe to suit what we want to think about politics, the identities that we have, the groups that we belong to. The um, political psychologist Jonathan Haidt um, says that the way to think about the way our brains work is that we have identities and preferences which are kind of like the case, and then the rational part of our brain is the lawyer, and the lawyer will build the best case using the best tools available in order to defend the position which has already been decided. But the difference in a way is that an actual lawyer won't spend too much time thinking about whether the case is really true. A lawyer will try not to ask his or her client, did you do it? Whereas we are our own clients, so we end up coming to believe the case that we made. So to use that Soprano example, it's the reason why Tony Soprano needed a good lawyer. So a good lawyer for Tony Soprano is someone who will not say to him, Tony, did you do it? And then Tony Soprano needed a good psychiatrist who said to him, did you do it? And really meant it. So psychiatrist, Trump. This is the last part of this lecture. So in 15 minutes, I'm going to try and tell you how I think we should think about this title in relation to that image. So as I say, I think Trump is a conspiracy theorist. I think he's been peddling them for years. I think they are, you know, they are the basis of his political campaign. The Bertha movement was what got him the attention of the Republican base. And although he abandoned it late on in his campaign, he abandoned the view that President Obama wasn't born in the United States 
by creating another conspiracy theory which said that Hillary Clinton was responsible for that rumor anyway. It was a secret plot by her organization. <laughs> He's a conspiracy theorist, and a lot of his supporters are conspiracy theorists. So there is evidence that 70% of people who voted for Trump in the Republican primaries don't just subscribe to the view that Obama is not an American citizen. They subscribe to the view that Obama is a secret Muslim. And if you think Obama is a secret Muslim, you really probably do need a kind of full-blown conspiracy theory to explain that, because that takes quite a lot of covering up. And in a way, that is the classic conspiracy theory with hundreds, thousands of years of history behind it, the fear that people are pretending to be one thing when they are secretly something else. The classic version of that is the secret Jew, and it's still everywhere in politics, particularly in the Middle East. This is just a variant on one of the kind of definitive conspiracy theories. So 70% of Trump voters in the primaries believe that Obama is secretly a Muslim. Are those people extremists? I would say no. I would be very hesitant to say that they're extremists because I think very few of them would act on that belief. Many of them haven't really thought about it. It's just a retrofit belief that suits their political preferences. And it is in many ways channeling their basic dissatisfaction with the Obama regime in a pretty unpleasant and for, I say, us liberals, particularly European liberals, uncomfortable way. But I don't think it makes them extremists. I don't think it makes many of them conspiracy theorists because very few of them will have researched it, looked into it. Very few of them will have thought about it. It's just convenient. But I suspect that you can say of them, they're not just ticking a box on a form, Many, majority, nearly all, probably do believe it. So I don't want to call it extremism. I don't want to call it full-blown conspiracy theory. But I think something about Trump has changed the dynamics of this argument. Because the other thing I don't want to say is it's just part of the ebb and flow of politics. To go back to that earlier argument I gave you, it's just kind of when Obama was in the White House, people believe that he's a secret this and a secret that. And now that Obama has gone, they'll believe Trump is a secret this and a secret that, a secret Putin agent or whatever. I don't think, I think Trump has changed that dynamic. So I want to finish by just trying to explain why I think that. There are three reasons. So the first reason is to do with this anxiety about post-truth and the information age that we live in. So that view that conspiracy theories are part of the ebb and flow of democracy and when this lot are in power, the suspicion is on them, then when this lot is in power, the suspicion is on them, presupposes that information kind of tracks power and scrutiny tracks power. So the Democrats are in, and the press, and the media, and the citizenry, because they now have the power, start asking the difficult questions of them, and they leave the other lot alone. And then when power moves, the kind of laser of suspicion moves with it, and now you start scrutinizing this lot. And I think it's different now. And the reason it's different now is that the scrutiny doesn't move. The scrutiny is kind of ubiquitous. It's everywhere, and you can choose what scrutiny you want to encounter, and you can choose what news you want to get. So I don't like this phrase post-truth because I think it's a myth that there ever was a truth age in politics. So politicians are, on the whole, not particularly truthful, and they never have been. And Trump is not some great outlier here, although he's sort of more egregious and more, I think he's more shameless, but that's different. So there's not some previous truth age and now suddenly we've moved post-truth. I think the difference is to do with information scarcity and information availability. So 
truth has always been a scarce resource, but information used to be a scarce resource too. If you wanted to encounter news, you didn't have a lot of choice about where to look for it. You had to find the news that was available. And so when the scrutiny moves over here, you would have to move with it. Your choice was no news, or in a sense, mainstream news, or local news. Now we're kind of luxuriating in choice. So previously, beggars can't be choosers. If you couldn't choose where to get your news from, there was a tendency, actually, for scrutiny to move in this kind of unidirectional way. But now, because we luxuriate in choice, if you do not want President Donald Trump to be scrutinized, you can avoid any news that subjects him to that scrutiny, and it will still call itself news. And I'm not saying it'll all be fake, but it will be tailored to your preferences. And then Google and Facebook will tailor their algorithms to double down on your preferences. And so there just isn't the ebb and flow anymore. I mean, the phrase for it is the echo chamber of democracy. That's what it's become. It doesn't move and move. It's fragmented. That's the first reason. The second reason is that I think Trump and the, the kind of people that Trump is representing don't fit into that ebb and flow dynamic anyway. Some of them do. Some of them are just Republicans. But some of them are people who are fundamentally disenchanted with the institutions of democratic politics. And Trump hasn't come into power and kind of, though he took the votes of those people, then distanced himself from them and embraced conventional democratic politics. He took the votes of those people, the people who are basically have had enough of a whole range of democratic institutions, including pretty much all of the institutions of Washington, D.C., and he's representing them against many of the mainstream Republicans. So his inaugural address, the, the, the speech that finished with him making that gesture, in it, he said that this wasn't just a transfer of power from one president to another, the ebb and flow. This wasn't just a transfer of power from one party to another, the ebb and flow. This was a transfer of power from the swamp of Washington back to the people, from democratic institutions representative democratic institutions, back to the people. That is a much more radical rejection of democracy and legitimate democratic institutions than simply, when this lot are in, we won't trust them, but when our lot are in, it's fine, and let them not trust us. And it leaves people nowhere to go. I mean, the thing about Trump is that his suspicion is kind of ubiquitous. I mean, it's like that old joke, how can you call me prejudiced? I hate everybody. That's not an ebb and flow politics. It's something more than that. And then finally, that argument that it's about the ebb and flow of democracy, it comes from two American political scientists called Joseph Yuzinski and Joseph Parent, and they coined this catchphrase, conspiracy theory is for losers. So conspiracy theory is for people who have lost in politics, lost in life, feel excluded, feel on the outside, and it's a kind of consolation for them. If that, law, if that man is in Washington, I'm going to believe that he's secretly X or Y or Z. And they wanted to say, don't worry about it too much, because it's for losers. That's a harder argument to make when the conspiracy theorist wins. So he's not a loser, right? There are lots of words you could use to describe Donald Trump, right? Hundreds. But loser, at the moment, is not one of them. Conspiracy theory is a kind of governing philosophy is now the governing philosophy of the United States. And the United States is not the only place where this is true. So the United States has now caught up with places like Turkey, 
where conspiracy theory is the governing philosophy of the state. Or Putin's Russia, where conspiracy theory is to a large extent the governing philosophy, the official position of the state. Increasingly Poland, where the Law and Justice Party run politics using as their primary tool of information and disinformation conspiracy theory. The United States of America is catching up with Turkey and Russia and Poland. Conspiracy theory is now for winners. And that is really dangerous. So let me conclude by just trying to say exactly why I think it's so dangerous. I, I want to sort of focus on two things I think follow from the analysis I've given. I want to repeat, but I think it's important, what I said, which is the danger of using the label extremist to badge people who might believe that, say, Obama is a secret Muslim or, in this country, might believe that there was a secret plot to allow immigrants into the United Kingdom. Some of those people might be extremists. I suspect not many on the government's definition, active, vocal, violent. I think few of them are full-blown conspiracy theorists. I think most of them are just really, really angry, disenchanted, disenfranchised citizens. I don't think they're extremists. and I think we should be really careful about how we use that word. But I also think, actually, there's another threat here. So there is the threat of what happens when conspiracy theory arrives in power. Because what I tried to suggest about conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorists is that most of them are a million miles from power, and that's what makes them conspiracy theorists, or they've been pushed to the margins. That's what's driving that worldview. But when conspiracy theory connects with power, then I think what you get is extremism. Because conspiracy theory plus power is actually, to my mind, a scarier proposition than extremism plus power. Because I think one of the features about extremists is that while they're being called extremists and are being kept on the edges, they have a tendency to see the world in conspiracy theory terms. But that's often pretty contingent. I could use the Sinn Féin example here. I don't think it's an inherent feature of the worldview. And that as, and it happens throughout history, extremists are brought in from the margins to the centre, and many previously labelled extremist organisations come into position of, of power, what power often does is it tames the extremism. The responsibility of power, the coming to inhabit legitimate institutions and wanting to use that legitimacy to exercise power, leads to a kind of moderating effect. So extremism plus power, not always, not in Stalin's case, but often leads to a moderating effect. And I think not in Stalin's case because he was a full-blown conspiracy theorist. But conspiracy theory plus power, I think, can lead to a liberating effect. Actually, it can enhance the worldview. And I think we've seen a bit of it with Trump. I mean, it's early days and there are conflicting reports. In some respects, he's behaving more conventionally than you might expect but in other respects, he's really not. And the thing that we have to remember about Donald Trump's presidency is that it really is early days. So if this is going to last four years, let alone eight, we're two weeks in, and nothing's happened yet. Nothing, I mean, obviously things have happened, but nothing, you know, the defining event, who knows what it'll be. And you can think of awful things that it could be. And I think there is a certain amount of evidence from those other parts of the world I mentioned, particularly Russia and Turkey, is conspiracy theory plus power plus crisis equals extremism at the heart of government. 
find groups to say they are the ones who were really responsible and suspend the rule of law and go after them with a vengeance. I'm not saying that's definitely what's going to happen, but it is really, really early days. And I think there are reasons to think, and this is a very hazardous thing to say, but so this is just my view. You've got Trump, you've got his predecessor there, you've got Mrs. Trump there. We can't see his uh, vice president, Mike Pence. I think there is a case for saying that Mike Pence, or if you want another scenario, the man who came second to Trump in the Republican primaries, Ted Cruz. Mike Pence and Ted Cruz are more, I don't want to say extremist, but are more extreme politicians. They have a harder core of conservative, but quite, it's a contradiction in terms of radical conservative beliefs, um, which, you know, they, they haven't kind of run in politics on a wave of wacky conspiracy theories. They're in there for the long haul because there are certain things they really want to do. I think there is a case for saying that either of those two politicians are more extreme where they come from than Trump, but they aren't really conspiracy theorists. Actually, and as you might remember, Trump had a conspiracy theory about Ted Cruz's father, which is that he was involved in the Kennedy assassination. And that's not a joke. Trump tweeted it or said it. Um, so a lot of people say, well, you know, Trump's bad, but wouldn't Pence be worse? If my argument is right, extreme plus power leads to a tempering of the extreme. Conspiracy theory plus power leads to an enhancement of the worldview. I don't think Mike Pence would be worse. I think Trump is as bad as it gets. I hope he's as bad as it gets. One final, final remark. So I want to say something finally about Theresa May. <laughs> Since I am, I'm standing in for her, and I'm sure you'll agree she wouldn't have given that lecture. <laughs> Although it would have been funny to hear her give that lecture. Um, so she's had a rough week. Um, she held his hand. Uh, I think, again, in the way, I'm not being entirely flippant here, you know, we should be grateful we don't have her burden of responsibilities. We should all be grateful we don't face the dilemma of what to do when Donald Trump offers you his hand. <laughs> you don't want to take it, you don't want to not take it. Um, she's been criticized for ingratiating herself with the new regime. She's got a very difficult hand to play, and I'm not criticizing her for that. In her Conservative Party conference speech that she gave um, last autumn, shortly after she became Prime Minister, she gave a now somewhat notorious speech which did flirt at the edges with some of the less attractive rhetoric that comes from people who are really disenchanted with contemporary politics, including a lot of people who voted for Brexit, which sort of channels some of their suspicions and has echoes of some slightly nastier politics. So she used this phrase that some people found very distasteful. I think she was slightly naive in using it, in which she attacked citizens of nowhere, the kind of cosmopolitan elite. That's just on the edges of a whole set of beliefs that does go down the path to citizens of nowhere standing in for Jews. She did not mean that at all. I'm not suggesting for a second that was in her mind. But she was on the edges of that kind of language. I didn't think that was a great speech. But I'm absolutely certain that Theresa May is not a conspiracy theorist. I don't think she's really said anything or done anything to suggest she has anything like Donald Trump's worldview. I think the way she's comported herself recently around Brexit and the speech that she gave, there are lots of things you can attack and dislike about it. It is part of the ebb and flow of democratic politics. I don't think she said anything really 
that we would categorize as a conspiracy theory. So people sometimes try to run together Brexit with Trump and British politics post-Brexit with American politics post-Trump, or not post-Trump, not yet, Trump, <laughs> post-Trump's victory. I don't think we should run them together. I think they're very different. And one of the differences is they, and maybe some of you if you're Americans, they now have a conspiracy theorist at the heart of power. And we don't. And for that, I think we should be grateful. Thank you. Thank you, David, for giving us a very insightful way to view Donald Trump as the weeks go past. Um, next week, we go to extreme rowing, <laughs> which will be a change. I don't think there'll be any conspiracies there. But uh, <laughs> OK, there'll be lots of conspiracies next week as well. Anyway, thank you very much. Yeah.